I'm Mike Lunsford, and this is Stop Me If You've Heard This, a podcast where we dig deeper into the stories you thought you knew. If you set out to define David Bowie, you would be undertaking a difficult task. Was he a rock musician? Was he just a singer? Was he an electronic artist? Maybe a jazz musician, perhaps. The all-encompassing pop moniker fit him best. The answer to which one of those he was is a resounding yes to all of the above. Bowie is all of them, but also so much more. He was also an actor, a writer, a director, a producer, a, a savvy tech creator. But above all else, he was an innovator. A discussion of how he changed the music industry is to come in this episode of Stop Me If You Heard This. David Robert Jones was born January 8th, 1947 in Brixton, a section of London, England. Interestingly, as David grew up, there seemed to be signs that he would become the pop icon that he was. In grade school, he was described as gifted and single-minded and a defiant brawler, which is an awesome description. In his movement and dance classes, he was noted as being vividly artistic and had astonishing poise for someone his age. When he would perform in front of his friends, they would describe him as mesmerizing, like someone from another planet, which really kind of sets the tone for his career, doesn't it? As David grew up, he was always involved in music. He was a member of several bands, always becoming the frontman without fail. None of those bands really ever went anywhere, and he started on his own solo career in the 60s, uh, late 60s, and had the misfortune of having the same name as another artist, Davy Jones of the Monkees. In 1967, David changed his stage name to David Bowie, after American pioneer and giant knife enthusiast Jim Bowie. Interestingly enough, being from England, it makes sense that Bowie would pronounce the name differently than what Americans grew up hearing as the quote-unquote proper pronunciation. Imagine people reading comic books in the 60s and 70s and not knowing if the X-Men villain was named Magneto or Magneto. It's the same basic issue. In 1969, Bowie had his first hit, Space Oddity. Its timing of release was nearly perfect as the song came out only five days before the Apollo 11 launch. We'll listen to Space Oddity right now. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Ground control to Major Tom. Seven. Commencing countdown engines on Three, two, check ignition And may God's love be with you Space Oddity became a massively huge hit as it continued on for decades, one of Bowie's most enduring songs. It often topped the charts again and again as it was re-released, each time getting a new set of fans. It has become so embedded in our pop culture identity that shows like Friends and cartoons like The Venture Brothers used it or referenced it. 
When Space Oddity came out, Bowie was very folksy in his sound, using mostly acoustic guitar on his previous albums. But with his new album, his backing band was much heavier, uh, delving into the realms of darker topics unheard of in the rock genre to this point. Uh, His next album was titled The Man Who Sold the World. We'll give that a listen and talk a little bit about its legacy afterward. his friend which gave us some surprise I spoke into his eyes I thought you died alone a long long time ago As his star grew, Bowie had his first trip to America to promote uh, The Man Who Sold the World album. He did radio and other media interviews, oftentimes wearing a dress. Uh, It was the same dress that he wore on the cover of the album. In some cases, it was well-received. Rolling Stone's John Mendelsohn described him as ravishing, almost disconcertingly reminiscent of Lauren Bacall. However, others were not so receptive. Uh, Wearing the dress on the street, a male pedestrian produced a gun and told Bowie to kiss his ass. I guess he wasn't really ready for, for David Bowie in a dress. A lot of influential musicians, though, they were ready for what Bowie had to say. The Man Who Sold the World has since been cited as inspiring the goth rock, dark wave, and science fiction elements of works by artists such as Susie and the Banshees, The Cure, Gary Newman, John Fox, Nine Inch Nails, but most famously, and probably where this song is noted for a lot of the younger generation, is Kurt Cobain of Nirvana. Uh, he was a huge fan of the album, listening it in, uh, at number 45 in his top 50 favorite albums in a journal of his, and actually did a stirring cover of the title track on Nirvana's MTV's Unplugged album. As his sound changed, so did his look. Instead of just simply focusing on the music, Bowie was fascinated with the theatrical side of music. He studied theater extensively, often performing in plays, movies, and early in his career, he was even a dancer. He combined these interests into his first onstage musical character, Ziggy Stardust, and with it, essentially started the concept of glam rock. We'll listen to one of the hit songs that came about via Ziggy Stardust, in fact, his first one, and that's uh, Starman, and then we'll discuss a little bit more about the character. Star man waiting in the sky. He'd like to come. 
During that same U.S. tour where he was promoting The Man Who Sold the World, Bowie was already playing with the idea of creating a character uh, as an onstage persona, and he sought out members of the new punk scene, uh, specifically Iggy Pop and Lou Reed. Uh, the two would be the two main inspirations of the character Ziggy Stardust. But what, who is Ziggy Stardust, you may ask if you're unfamiliar? Well, he was a fictional androgynous bisexual rock star who acted as a messenger for extraterrestrial beings. He got a backing band that took a more hard rock element of the Man Who Sold the World album and added some lighter, more experimental music that was working on his previous albums like Hunky Dory. It all came together with the album The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars, The Spiders from Mars being his backing band. His new Ziggy Stardust persona had some serious advantages. Uh, the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars was on the chart for two years, and it brought his prior album Hunky Dory along with it. There was a newfound appreciation for David Bowie and his music, but there was also a heavy price. Bowie never did anything halfway. He totally immersed himself in the Ziggy Stardust character while he was on stage. He was quoted as saying, off stage, I'm a robot. On stage, I achieve emotion. That's probably why I prefer dressing up as Ziggy to being David. Playing that same role over and over again was really taxing to him, and it became impossible for him to separate Ziggy Stardust and later his character, the Thin White Duke, from his own persona offstage. Ziggy, Bowie said, wouldn't leave me alone for years. That's That was when it all started to go sour. My whole personality was affected. It became very dangerous. I really did have doubts about my own sanity. Well, Bowie didn't mention in these quotes, though, is that he was also a growing drug problem uh, that only exacerbated these personality issues. In 1974, David moved to the U.S., uh, in fact, moved to Los Angeles. With his move came a shift in his sound again, this time leaning more to soul and funk. A perfect example of this sound would be one of his most iconic songs, and that's Fame. We'll go ahead and give that a listen, and then we'll talk a little bit more about it when we come back. was one of the first English pop musicians to overtly try his hand at music that was traditionally a black musical style. Specifically with the album Young Americans, he tried to draw on the influence of the local musical scene. He was actually in Philadelphia at the time of recording the album, and he tried to capture the soul and R&B sound. He called it the squashed remains of ethnic music as it survived in the age of Muzak rock, written and sung by a white limey. It must have been more well thought of than what Bowie described it as. He ended up being one of the first white artists to appear on Soul Train, so there was a little bit of respect given to him, at least for that. In 1976, his next album, uh, Station to Station, Bowie would adopt a very controversial character known as the Thin White Duke. Bowie described the Thin White Duke as a well-dressed, mad aristocrat and a moral 
zombie, an emotionless Aryan Superman, fascist type, a would-be romantic with absolutely no emotion at all, but who spouted a lot of neo-romance. In an interview, he made some comments that some have attributed to support of Adolf Hitler and other fascist regimes. Bowie would later attempt to change the perception, claiming it was all part of his character. He also attributed some of these intense remarks to, as he described, astronomical usage of cocaine. In fact, he stated years later that he didn't even remember recording the album Station to Station. Now, it remains to be seen if David Bowie actually did, in fact, believe the pro-fascist statements he was making, but he did spend the next two decades of his career doing everything he could to try to fix this and undo the damage that he had done. Throughout the 80s and 90s, Bowie criticized racism and European politics and the American music industry. In fact, there's a famous video that exists via YouTube where he rips MTV for lacking promotion of African-American artists. Uh, Seriously, if you haven't seen it, look it up. It's definitely worth your time. As he retired the thin white dude character, he moved back to Europe, spending time in Switzerland and Germany as he got himself clean and refocused himself on his music. As he worked on a more minimalistic approach, he also worked with one of the inspirations for the Ziggy Stardust character, and that's Iggy Pop. He co-wrote a lot of Iggy's music for two of his biggest albums, uh, The Idiot and Lust for Life. As he worked on his Berlin trilogy, one of his biggest hits from that time was the song Heroes from the album of the same title. As the 80s started, and Bowie worked on his third piece of the Berlin Trilogy, uh, he helped bring a new British musical movement into prominence. Groups like Duran Duran, A Flock of Seagulls, Boy George, and Culture Club were all brought into mainstream, uh, and people learned the term New Romantic, which really is just an expansion of glam rock mixed with some synth pop. Bowie continued to evolve and change with the times, and his reputation as a fantastic lyricist and musician gave us one of the greatest musical team-ups of all time, and that's Under Pressure, with fellow British rock icons Queen.
Under Pressure was a smash hit in the UK, hitting number one on the charts, the third time Bowie accomplished this feat. It was a sign of success to come, though as his next album, 1983's Let's Dance, was the pinnacle of his popularity and commercial success. It was at this point, Bowie was one of the most popular artists on MTV, winning two MTV Music Awards, including the first ever Video Vanguard Award. The 80s were Bowie's decade, uh, but just like his time as Ziggy Stardust, there were positives and negatives to this. Commercially, he was making money hand over fist, but he had sold out, essentially. Let's Dance was as successful as it was because Bowie convinced Nile Rodgers to pr- produce this album instead of longtime collaborator and producer Tony Visconti, because as Bowie put it, to have hit singles, showing Rodgers a picture of Little Richard in a red suit getting into a bright red Cadillac saying, Nile, darling, that's what I want my album to sound like. Negative to all this success, he hated the music he was producing. Towards the end of the 80s, in a move of personal artistic integrity, he dropped his solo album career, and he became lead singer of a band called Tin Machine. The band, which was criticized heavily when their albums were released, are in hindsight looked at much more favorably as almost prophetic of the coming grunge and alternative scenes of the early 90s. In this shift to alternative music, Bowie became an icon again. Bowie had found a new genre to settle in for the time and collaborated with artists like Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. Here's one of his collaborations with Trent Reznor, and that's I'm Afraid of Americans. Pretend. Jonas in America, 
David Bowie pushed the envelope of what he was musically, but also was light years ahead of the wave, technologically speaking. He released the single Telling Lies online and got 300,000 downloads in 1996, when most people were still trying to figure out how to get on the internet. In 1997, he did a live stream of one of his concerts, though most didn't really have the capacity to view it. The following year, he created his own ISP called BowieNet. More than that, it was an early predecessor of the fan community. It gave access to exclusive content and the ability to live chat with David Bowie himself. In 1999, Bowie was involved in a video game called Omicron, the Nomad Soul, a trend way ahead of its time. But we set the trend for this sort of thing years before other artists even thought about it. In a 1999 interview with the BBC, Bowie spoke of the internet and how it was going to change everything and the qualities that it had were revolutionary which ironically the BBC interviewer laughed at him skeptically but he was quoted as saying music has lost its place as a flag bearer of rebellion the internet carries the flag of being subversive and possibly rebellious and chaotic and nihilistic it's become more about the audience he said so from my standpoint being an artist I want to see what the new construction is between artist and audience there is a breakdown but we cited rave culture, too, where the audience is at least as important as whoever is playing at the rave, as if the artist accompanies the audience. I don't think we've seen the tip of the iceberg, but we told BBC, uh, speaking of the internet, it's almost as if we're on the cusp of something both exhilarating and terrifying, which is friggin' prophetic. We've talked a great deal about his musical career and interest in technological pursuits, but Bowie was a celebrated actor as well. He won a Saturn Award for Best Actor in science fiction film in The Man Who Fell to Earth. Many of us remember him as Jareth, the Goblin King in the 80s classic Labyrinth, but he was also in films like The Linguini Incident with Rosanna Arquette, even getting the role of famous inventor Nikola Tesla in The Prestige. He even did voice work as he famously appeared in an episode of SpongeBob SquarePants as Lord Royal Highness. David Bowie was innovative in music, in acting, in technology, and in personal matters, too, like sexuality. He was a sex symbol for all walks of life. Women and men were attracted to him. Teenagers wanted the type of freedom he possessed to truly be themselves and experiment with every facet of life as he did freely. And even in death, he was innovative. In 2014, David Bowie was diagnosed with terminal liver cancer. This was not publicly known. A handful of friends, family, and associates knew about it. As he produced his Broadway show, Lazarus, which, if you haven't heard of, go check out the soundtrack for it. It's, it's incredible. A few of the producers from the show and a few key artists knew about his diagnosis, but they kept it quiet. And he never made a press release. He instead did something unprecedented. He turned his death into another work of art. Because ultimately, Bowie was never just a musician. He was an artist who thought about every aspect of his art and promotion of it. Was just a genius when it came to marketing himself and his work. 
So even in the grip of what must have been incredible physical pain, he made a conscious decision of how he was going to end his life. He crafted every aspect of his final album, Black Star. And the album was ready for all intents and purposes, but he held off on the release date to coincide with his 69th birthday. But also, he timed it perfectly with the release of other media. He didn't want to go up against big things. For instance, in uh, November of 2015, Adele had just released one of her albums. And in December of 2015, Star Wars The Force Awakens was released. And he knew better than to try to take on anything that, that big. He was always media savvy, and he chose the post-New Year lull when there aren't a lot of other albums coming out for the release of Black Star. His media team ensured that he was on the cover of Uncut, Mojo, the LA Times, the New York Times, both those publications having major featurettes about him on his birthday. The timing was incredible. On top of all of this meticulous planning, he never once let on that he was ill to the public, showing up at events with people praising how good he looked. He was, and he was riddled with cancer at this point. I mean, he must have been in excruciating pain. But he somehow managed to hang on to January 8th. It's like he made a decision that this is how it's going to go. This is how I'm controlling this. Like he was never out of control once. Even his death was innovative and unlike no one else's. Two days after the release of Black Star, on January 10th, 2016, David Bowie passed away at the age of 69. David Bowie had no contemporaries, as he is in a category unto himself, unlike any before and any that will follow. Who was he emulating? No one. He was expressing himself through his art and his characters. He performed music as he wanted it to be presented. He presented himself how he wanted to be seen. In the end, even his death was carefully crafted in a performance. Not only was it flawlessly executed in its presentation, there was certain elegance and respectfulness to it. He never complained publicly. He never asked for sympathy. He simply continued doing what he loved and made it a way to give all of his fans one last incredible performance. On his birthday, he gave us, he gave us a gift. He truly was one of the most innovative artists of our time and the reason why he is the feature of this episode of Stop Me If You Heard This. artist and in researching him for this episode um, I got most of my material and information from Wikipedia honestly but more of it from articles from the BBC from Rolling Stone uh, there's an excellent article that Clark Benson of Ranker wrote as well check all of these articles out they're just incredible uh, but thank you so much for listening to another episode of Stop Me If You Heard This and stay tuned because we will have more great stories about awesome things This has been Pirate Radio Network production juice bags. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy. <laughs>